You're listening to Past and Present, the Colonial Williamsburg podcast. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Harmony Hunter. Continuing our series on historic trades, this week we're talking with the master of a trade we could hardly do without, the shoemaker. Our guest today is Al Segudo, who's master boot and shoemaker in Colonial Williamsburg's historic area. Al, thank you for being here today. Well, thank you, Harmony. Well, we've been talking to a lot of the tradespeople of uh, Colonial Williamsburg's historic area, but I understand that shoemaking as a trade in the 18th century was one of the most widely practiced trades. Why was there such a demand for this trade? Well, first of all, everybody's got feet, and they all have to have shoes. Uh, the rate of consumption per pair per year per person uh, from the 18th century doubles from about two pair a year to about four pair a year. So what it did is necessitated a lot more shoemakers. We know that one of the first trades that arrived in Virginia uh, is the shoemaker's trade. Uh, Jamestown Colony is established in 1607, 1610. We see the first shoemaker. Um, does that suggest something about the necessity of this as a trade? If you're, if you're breaking a wilderness, you're going to need shoes. Well, absolutely. And Britain had been uh, had had some experience in supplying its colonists from you know a distance, just as the Romans did centuries before them. The supply lines were very long, however, and the idea that the London Company had a beginning at Jamestown was to sell them everything they needed, and that wasn't very practical when it came to shoes at the rate they were wearing out. So they went on a very aggressive recruiting campaign in London to recruit shoemakers and other trades too by 1610 to come over here and supply the needs. I've also heard the shoemaker called the cord waner. What is that about? Ah, well, that's an old French term that we couldn't get our tongues around. Uh, the French word is cordonnier, which means a worker in cordovan leather uh, in French. And the English just sort of chopped it into cord waner. And, and now in, in today's, uh, in the parlance of our times, it's shoemaker. It's shoemaker or it's still cord waner in the, in the inner circles. But the one thing you will not tolerate being called is a cobbler. How is that different from what you do? Well, according to the dictionaries of the time, a cobbler is a bungling workman in general, especially a botcher or a mender of old shoes. Shoemakers and cobblers have lived at enmity since the Middle Ages because the cobblers wanted to fix old shoes and sell secondhand shoes. And of course, the shoemakers or cord waners wanted to make and sell new ones. So we basically squashed the cobblers uh, through legislation. So they wind up being sort of the wretched trade that sit out in the street with the dogs mending old shoes. They're prohibited from buying new leather. They have no friends. <laughs> Tell me about how you make a shoe. What are the materials that you need? What is the assembly process? Well, it varies widely uh, between men's shoes and women's shoes at our time period. For most, the women's shoes are made from textiles in the uppers. The upper part of the shoe is made out of silks and wools. The heels are carved out of wood. Um, the soles, of course, are leather, and it's all stitched together around a wooden form called a last. The men's shoes are all leather, top, bottom, inside, and out, and they're likewise made around a wooden form. The whole process was divided into specialized tasks within a shop very early, actually about 2,000 years ago. So it's not one person making the shoe start to finish. You have the master of the shop who does the pattern work, and who buys the leather, so he cuts it out to make sure none of it gets embezzled. And then it goes to another worker called a closer who sews the uppers, the real thin parts of the shoe, together. Once the uppers are completed, the master cuts out the rest of the bits and gives them to the journeyman in the shop, and they build the shoe around the wooden last, again, sewing and stitching all the way. I imagine you must have some specialized tools to accomplish all of that. What are some of the tools that are distinct to the shoemaker's trade? <laughs> well, um, 
relative to other trades like the blacksmiths, we use very few tools uh, compared to some of the other trades. Mostly awls for sewing, curved, you know, pointy things for poking the holes for sewing, uh, knives for cutting, pinchers for pulling and stretching the leather, mm, polishing sticks and rubbing bones to polish the work up when you're done, that sort of thing. The old phrase was it, uh, a good shoemaker could make a pair of shoes with a knife and a fork. But uh, all the while, the tool makers and marketers of tools were trying to make more and more tools to sell to more and more workmen. And in the 18th century, we don't have a distinct form for the left and the right foot? Not anymore. The uh, crooked shapes or the crooked forms were given up about 1600 for economy. So like your socks or your stockings, there's no shape to it till you put your foot in it. I want to think about some of the styles that were popular in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. What are people looking for in a shoe? What, what's defining the style of the time? Well, shoemaking, like a lot of the other trades, were real arbiters of fashion all through, well, through all the centuries. Um, the number of styles for men and the number of styles for women were very diverse. You had slippers for indoors, common shoes for wearing every day, strong shoes for workers and, uh, say, rural workers and farmers, uh, boots for riding, other types of boots for hunting on foot. Uh, even specialized forms like tennis shoes were popular with the French, um, who were quite given to playing the royal tennis in specialized shoes. Dancing pumps for dancing, oh, good heavens. You know, there's endless variety of styles. Actually, there was an archaeological example uh, dug up on the eastern shore of Virginia from about 1660, and the toe of the shoe forked, not real pronounced into devil horns like some of them did in Europe, but into the little forked shape. So even the outrageous styles were making their way transatlantic. You mentioned evidence that came from an archaeological dig. I imagine that must be one of the sources of research that you use. How do you know what you know about shoes and shoemaking in the 17th and 18th century? Well, you really hit the nail on the head. Archaeology probably informs about 95% of what we do know about shoes uh, in the time period, how they're put together. Fortunately, most of them have fallen apart over the years, so we can actually peek inside of them which the curators don't like us to do with the nice shoes and collections. So they're very informative in that regard. Shoemaking also has benefited from having a number of uh, sort of do-it-yourself textbooks uh, since the 17th century published on how to make a shoe. And that also informs our work. So we have the shoemaker uh, is a resident trade in the Virginia colony, but he's mm -hmm. also competing with imports. How is that organization working? Well, the, the vision for the colonies in the beginning was one of creating a new market abroad for goods from home. Um, however, that model didn't succeed terribly well, and you had entrepreneurial people here, too, that wanted to make some money. So early on, the, the shoemakers in Virginia were making shoes, but they were exporting them out of Virginia. So the local people were not getting the benefit of them. They were going off in the coastwise trade down to other colonies and areas. So by 1661, Virginia nationalized the tanning and shoemaking industry in the colony. It was that important. Um, they basically stipulated that each of the 16, at that time, 16 counties, had to erect one or more tan houses and shoe manufactories, and they forbade export. So while this is going on locally, the shoemakers in London, of course, see this as a cash cow, and they're exporting up to 40,000 pair a year they send here in the 1640s. So you've got locally made products, some of which are being sold locally, some are being exported, naughty, naughty, and then you've got thousands and thousands of pairs coming in from England as well. What's, is there a difference in quality between the imported or the way that the shoemaker um, in Colonial Virginia constructs a shoe versus the way that the imported shoe is going to be made? 
Not fundamentally. The shoemakers here are English shoemakers, or at least one generation removed, or they were trained by English shoemakers. The product, if it's substandard, isn't going to sell. At least it's not going to sell locally where there's sophisticated taste. You might get away with it on the eastern shore or down in the Carolinas, you know. But, um, no, locally the product is pretty comparable to shoes coming out of London. But the point there is no country ever exports its best stuff. And even though there are a lot of uh, comments made during the 18th century about how superior British goods are and how wonderful they are, and in many cases they were, the best never left Britain. What's your favorite thing about practicing the trade here in the Colonial Williamsburg's historic area? I think one of the most delightful things for me as a shoemaker for almost 40 years now is when people put on a shoe or a boot that I've made, and they go, this doesn't feel like a new shoe, this feels like my foot. You know, and I feel like I bridge that gap between something that I've made with my hands, you know, throughout the day, that somebody else has put on and interacted with it successfully, that it works as a tool, as a garment. I mean, you figure making trousers, you know, you could uh, miss and make them an inch too short and they just sort of look nerdy, but a pair of shoes, you don't have that luxury. If you miss, you know, you cripple somebody. We can see your work throughout the historic area on historic interpreters and even interpreters like George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, where can people come see you at work? Well, the shoemaker shop is located right next door to Greenhouse Door on the Duke of Gloucester Street in the middle of the historic area. We are the smallest interpreted space in the entire historic area, but we're in there diligently making shoes, trying to give people a good understanding, as we like to say. Al, thank you so much for being our guest today, and we hope that everybody makes it by your shop on their next visit to the historic area. Why, thank you, Harmony. To support the podcast and Colonial Williamsburg programs, visit history.org slash donate. We love hearing from you. Visit history.org slash podcasts and click comment at the top of the page to drop us a line.